Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. Welcome to this week's conversation with a very, very better world leader indeed. And this one resonated very deeply with me. It was such a curious dialogue, just so many permeations and moments of real alignment and real insight and real inspiration. And a conversation that very much reflected another. So this discussion is with Tigria Gardinia, an incredible woman, a Cuban-American who is now based in northern Italy and essentially is devoting her life and her work to really understanding the innate connections between plant and human and everything in between, and particularly examining plant communication. Now, this might sound like a somewhat bizarre topic when we come to look at the realm of leadership, but what we're finding in these dialogues and in these journeys, and in particular when we engage with our audiences, these are the things that are resonating. When we think about the systemic nature of everything in which we operate and the systemic nature of the changes that we're all seeking to make, these curious little I don't know, so singularities almost, something like plants, they, they become very pertinent and almost sort of all extending, all connecting. And that's what this conversation really fundamentally is about. Everything is connected. There is a relationship between everything. And looking at something as simple as the plant in your home office, there is a lesson for you in there and one that resonates very powerfully into those who lead, how we lead, and how we interact with our world. So if I hope I've succeeded there in engendering some curiosity in you, here we go. Here is the conversation with Tigria Gardinia. Hey, Tigria, welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. So awesome to have you here. Thank you. Super excited to be here. So we had a really fun conversation just last week, our first discussion, and I'm really hoping that we can bring some of that energy back you know, to this discussion. Uh, that having been said, as we've just discussed before we hit record, we're both kind of in the back of, a, of an interesting expanse of hours, uh, you know, doing all the things that we are so grateful to be able to do in our busy global lives. So um, let's let's see how we go. So first of all, the, the consistent question, where do you find yourself? What space are you in as you join us here today? So I live in a place called Domenher in Northern Italy. It's one of the largest spiritual eco communities in the world. So I find myself in one of our nucleo homes, which is where I live. We call them nucleos because we are in shared housing. Some of us choose to live in these shared housing. So I'm in this beautiful nucleo called Cornucopia. 
and Cornucopia is amazing. It's a big house. We're actually a small group now. When I moved in here, we were almost 30 people. We're actually down to about 12 right now. I think 15 with kids, which is great. And I'm in the middle of my workspace with a beautiful view out to our greeting tree, this Himalayan cedar, and with spider plant, one of the plants that I collaborate with sitting here on my desk with me. There's so much in there straight away. I'm like, right, <laughs> collaborating with a plant, a greeting tree. But I'm actually going to kind of go with a bit of a rudimentary question to begin with, um, and, and maybe I hope not not too uh, you know sort of benign a topical question. But you've mentioned your community is somewhat contracted. So have you effectively been impacted by all the disruption of COVID, or are there other you know sort of influences that have led to people you know sort of not spending time in the space any longer? Yeah, it's kind of this weird piece because from those of us that live here, we are, uh, so Italy has been pretty locked down. I mean, we haven't had restaurants open for the longest time. Um, Shopping is very, very limited. And we're just coming out of red zone, which means everything's been closed down for um, about a month and a half, if not two months. But within the pocket of Dom and her in the sense that we're very spread out, we don't live in one huge territory like many people imagine an eco-community being. We're not that kind of eco-village. We actually have uh, many houses spread out across an entire valley going even out a little bit farther in the valley. We're mixed in with all kinds of other people. That being said, we do have a healthcare system, really amazing doctors that are part of a community that have created an entire health ecosystem, you could say. And that has given us the ability to kind of, at least from what happens between us, somewhat control the situation. So there are moments when you almost don't feel it. Like I go days moving around here without a mask because we're at a place where our doctors have declared that within the community, there's nobody with COVID. So therefore we're allowed to kind of lower the measures. But we have had periods where like my house at the very beginning of the, of the pandemic went into full lockdown because we have a nurse and um, some other people who were infected. And so we had to go into a full lockdown where community members would bring us our food and the whole nine yards. So it's been really interesting interesting to see the differences of how you can, within a greater kind of government system, how you can act within it and the amount of liberty to a certain extent that we can allow ourselves because we have done so many things right. Like we've had periods where our doctors are like, you're not going to the other nucleos. You're always having to wear masks because you guys are not really taking things into consideration and we're having our numbers go high. And other times like we are right now where it's like, okay, these are the measures that you have to follow. And within that, then we can move around and we can do a lot of things. So we have definitely felt the impact from the external because obviously we don't have guests coming and we are a place that has like what's considered the eighth wonder of the world, these underground temples of humankind and and being uh, such a large and, and older of the eco-communities. We had a lot of guests and courses and things like that, and that's not happening. But within, we also have a whole strengthening and other pieces that we're able to kind of work within. And it's been, from my perspective, have been very interesting to see how we put our, our spiritual practice into kind of social practice and see how that works out between us with, obviously, our medical team who's doing tons of research on the vaccines and they're doing tons of research on, I mean, they, they work outside of the community as well. So they're very well informed with what's happening in the hospitals. Like I said, in my house, we have a nurse who goes 
to the hospital every single day to work. And so we are kind of very connected with what's happening and yet at the same time able to manage the situation differently. I think this whole period, I mean, it's fascinating enough to live through it, but I think it's going to be really fascinating in retrospect, you know, looking at all of the different ways and the sort of the variances in, you know, what practices were adopted and, you know, was kind of correlation and what was causation when it came to why this community was more resilient and so on. I mean, one of the conversations we had here right around the turn of the calendar year was with one of our collaborators here um, who runs runs an Aboriginal corporation. And he he was referencing how resilient Indigenous communities have been both from sort of a, a, a pure health perspective, but also from a from a community level, just because those that are still living in you know, their more sort of conventional, you know, for, for Aboriginal uh, communities, ways of living, like they're much more supportive and they're much more integrated and they don't live in these very isolated pockets where as soon as you don't basically have a workplace to go to um, and places like pubs and restaurants and sporting facilities, like you just have no outlet. I kind of came from an anthropological background, right? So I'm going to be really interested to see the ongoing study of how humans have navigated these these times and potentially here's going to be one of the dialogues I we can we can keep alive so I can uh, I can learn from what you guys have been doing. Yeah, and here's where I think there's there's kind of two aspects that from our community one purposefully like consciously worked on and the other one that probably we didn't even realize that we had done but that now that we're seeing it in action we're able to recognize it and one is the aspect that here being a spiritual community obviously we we talk a lot about the concept of the grail and the grail from a dumb and hurrying perspective we've learned that it's changed form and it's formed is evolutive illness right how we use and work with illness as a point of growth and an expansion And so to a certain extent with what's going on, we've been able to put that into practice. Like, what does that really mean now that we have this global illness that's happening? And what does that mean for the evolution of humanity, which is a big piece of topic around here? And I I won't go too far down that rabbit hole just because it's another topic, but it's interesting from one perspective. The other part of it is the study of positive mental health, right? If you look at the work of, of Dr. Corey Keyes from Emory University or some other great minds that are working around the idea of what creates a flourishing human being, like what is positive mental health, which we do not focus enough on. We focus on negative mental health, or we think that that, that, that is either like when you talk about mental health, that's usually around the negative aspects, but positive mental health um, is what creates resilience. And positive mental health is actually made up of really five main aspects. One of them is positive emotions. So therefore the way I feel, the way I feel is around myself from a positive way. And, and how am I looking at myself in a general context? The other is engagement. Like how engaged am I in my life and engaged in situations and things that are happening around me? My relationships, how many relationships, like do I feel like I have relationships, whether that's my community, my work relationships, but relationships in general, how sturdy and resilient are they? Do I feel like I have a sense of meaning? 
in my life and is whatever I'm doing, whether that's my work, whether that's my family, whether that's my social engagements, my spiritual engagements, do they fill me with meaning? And the last one is, do I feel like I have accomplishments? Am I accomplishing things on a kind of ongoing basis, right? If you have these five things in general, you have positive mental health and positive mental health leads to full resilience because I can have moments of downtime, but if my overall mental health is positive, then I'm going to be able to look at those downtimes, experience them fully without being afraid that I'm going to get stuck in them. And therefore I'm going to be able to move out of them much more quickly. And that's part of that resilience that happens. And I think as a community, whether you're like us who chooses to live together, or we have people all over the world that are connected to our community. And so you don't have to necessarily live together, but you feel like you have those five things in your life. You're building up that positive you know, mental health, which is what is going to help you get through this. It's what's going to allow you to sort of ride this wave take those downtimes whenever they're necessary, learn from those downtimes, going back to that grail concept of evolutive opportunities that come out of any kind of disease or situation of, of the sort. And then I'm going to be able to integrate that into the wave, the positive wave that's going to continue forward. And I'm going to live in that in that moment rather than living in that negativity. So I think we as community have that aspect because it's sort of built into the model. It's the reason why we choose here, but it's also part of what we work with, with, with our clients and with people is about how do I really build positive mental health? How do I build up those five aspects so that, you know, my life has meaning so that I have connections, so that I'm engaged, so that I feel positive emotions. And so I feel like I'm actually accomplishing things. Well, firstly, I'm going to say thank you. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> that was a very erudite response and has touched on about 30 specific topics that we could go right down and keep going free for for some time. So I'm just going to try and, you know, to an extent, kind of keep us on plan a little bit here. But first of all, a little bit of a, of a reflection. It is fascinating to me, and I don't think it's a trend. I think it's a it's a systemic shift towards the search for meaning that that is flowing out of this you know sort of global moment right i mean whether or not it, it, it it's encapsulated in a term like purpose and you know there's this you know sort of almost this this trending reach in pursuit of purpose and then purpose is something that we talk about a lot here you know i i, I think there is a seismic shift towards just there's got to be more connection there's got to be more you know so positivity uh it's got to be more than this relentless what's next what's next big 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 more 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 uh i mean we had a conversation you know, a couple of episodes back talking about we we fundamentally need to redefine success if we're going to create right. sustainable change and i think that's kind of really for me at the heart of, of what you just talked about because i can reflect on three dialogues that are ongoing for me at this particular moment in time two with clients and one with someone in my family where all of these people, all of which are in executive leadership roles, are really struggling from a positivity perspective, despite the fact that their businesses and their roles and all of the, you know, sort of adopted markers of success have seen exponential growth through 2020, right? Each of their businesses that they are either lead or own have had stratospheric success. You know, some of them have quadrupled in revenue and profit, but each of them is in all, you know, to their own sort of extent, deprived of several 
of the five things that you've just named, right? They don't have the engagement. They're very isolated. They are you know, really struggling to find connection and, and in particular meaning, you know, despite everything that seemingly is positive to the, I would say, uninformed external view, they look and their energy is really depleted. And yeah, yeah so I think there's, there is definitely a thing, you know, there's a wave, there's a, you know, sort of a shift, whatever you want to call it, a movement uh, towards this reconnection, this re-engagement and, and, and this, this search for, you know, something of substance, I think. Uh, and here you are, and you've got it, and, you know, you, <laughs> where you are, it's, as you say, it's been established for a while. It's not like it's a new deal for you guys. You've obviously touched on a number of poignant things that are salient to you, you know, such as your plant collaborator and the nature of the community that you have chosen and made a really, you know, sort of large leap of faith to move towards. Um, so I think... I. I certainly am not going to withhold my own curiosity to understand more than I do it now, the journey that you've been on to bring you to where you are today. So could you just share some of the kind of the key moments of the story of you? As you can tell from my accent, even though I live in Italy, I am not Italian. I'm actually Cuban American. I'm um, from the U.S. and um, grew up biculturally and kind of followed the tradition that most people do. You know, you go to school, you go to college, you graduate, you get a really good job, and that's exactly what I did. I mean, I, I got, I did get an unusual degree, even though I thought I was going to get a normal degree. I thought I was going to go after law school, and then I switched gears and decided to follow my passion, change schools. And I ended up with a degree in music engineering and electrical engineering. So very strange. I was only one of two women in my graduating class. So kind of like really pushing, I didn't even realize I was pushing boundaries, but I guess I was. When I finished school, I was lucky enough to, it was, it was kind of like the middle of the, of the tech bubble. And I was able to, um, get a job. They moved me out to Seattle. I was one of the first people to move to, to be moved by this company back then called, uh, Progressive Networks, which most people know as Real Networks now, which is an audio video company in, uh, Seattle, Washington. And I, from there, went to Microsoft and I did 10 years in high tech and I loved high tech. I'm cutting edge, really like I worked in Windows and I worked in what would eventually become the tablets that we're used to. But back then it was called tablet PC, but music was my passion. Music was my, the arts, the creativity. I love my engineering background and I love that, that sort of structured mind, but I love the arts even more. And I had an opportunity to kind of step back into the arts and manage artists and create large events. And so I I took it. I left the corporate world and I followed my bliss, as somebody might say, and opened up my first company, which was all around producing events and managing artists, um, both uh, visual artists, so painters and sculptors, and also working in kind of the electronic music scene. So I used to produce really large dance parties, but they were always with a transformation and, and focus. And that eventually led me to co-own a circus and eventually left the United States on a tour with Cirque du so very different background in some aspects. Like, I followed the circus and I came out and at the same time, I was already kind of into my spiritual studies. Part of the going back to meaning has always been really important to me. And so I was able to find a, a, a spiritual school that really touched an esoteric school that really touched to my core of understanding this sort of universe that we live in and giving meaning to my life and the things that I was doing. Because again, I felt 
really empowered when I was working at places like Microsoft from the perspective of I sat in rooms and I knew that the decisions we were making was touching the world because, you know, anybody who used Windows was touching the decisions we were making. So we felt really important, the, the work we were doing. But at the same time, I knew that I was missing that creativity, that need for the human to be able to unleash, you know, their their real true potential through creative thinking and creative arts. And that was what, you know, the whole circus life. But for me, I needed another layer on top of that, which was that, why are we here? What are we doing? And that spirituality of aspects. So when I, when I came to Europe, by this point, I was teaching Kabbalah and sacred geometry. I was working, um, I had my company and I was still producing events and I did work for Cirque du Soleil for a little while, but mainly I, I, I was on tour while my partner was, was really the one that was totally into the circus arts. When I came off, I decided to stay in Europe. I, um, and that's another odyssey all in its own, but I stayed in Europe and I moved to Spain first. And then I I had the opportunity to come visit Dom and her with some friends. It was a very girls weekend. Let's just go off to this crazy weird place in the middle of nowhere, Italy, and check out this place that people keep talking to us about from a spiritual perspective. I met some people here and was actually invited to come because of my tech background. When I started to explain a little bit of my background, one of the people here was like, oh my God, we need you. And I was like, um, no living in a house with 20 people, I will kill somebody. Like I am not meant for this. <laughs> I was like, not going to be able to do this. But she was like, come here, spend six months, work on a project. We need, um, so I built up, I came, it was very much a synchronicity. Cause when I came back to Barcelona, uh, my roommate was going to be leaving the country. So I had to find a new place to live. And I was like, fine, I'll spend six months out there. I will build up their social media strategy. I will like build out their Facebook, you know, do all these types of things. And then I'll come back and I'll live my wonderful life in Spain, which I love so much. Yeah. That was 10 years ago. I'm still here. <laughs> it's like, I never left because here I discovered community. And I discovered that that was one of the missing links. I had worked for a long time in my life to create friendships. I actually didn't grow up knowing how to really create long-lasting friendships and creating those, those kind of connections. And so living here having the opportunity to create those connections with people who speak completely different language, a completely different culture, to have those mirrors so in front of you all the time and having a spiritual background that gives you the opportunity to express and to, to kind of deal with those things was for me kind of like, oh yeah, I found my place. And then here, I was working and I was doing things and I heard this music going back to my musical roots that was like something I had never heard before. One day I was just walking in one of our, our areas and I, I heard this music. And when I followed the music to try to discover, because music to me has always been understandable. It's like, I can, I can tell an emotions and, and thoughts and feelings through that, that means that that's a medium that really speaks to me as a musician and also, um, as an engineer. And it, it, it just brings all of it together. And I discovered that the musician was actually a plant <laughs> through a device called the music of the plants, which is something that was developed here in Dom and her. This device is a musical instrument that allows plants to compose music live and that was it. That was another rabbit hole that completely has transformed my entire life, 
which was understanding plants, plant intelligence, the fact that plants can make decisions, that plants can hold memories, that plants can communicate with us through music as well as through other ways. And it opened me up to, it was like a key that work that I had been doing on myself, personal development work, work with other people, transformation of my my negative self. I'm a super negative person, believe it or not. All these aspects of who I am, my true nature started to come out through these relationships that I started to have with plants. And that just took me down to, you know, all different paths. I got a master's degree in plant social innovation and design. I started to learn about biomimicry and how we build with plants by working with plants as well as other organisms as models and mentors. But more than anything, my spiritual background allowed me to enter into the collaboration part. So yes, plants as models, yes, plants as mentors, but more than anything, for me, it's plants as collaborators because they have 470 million years of experience that we don't have as humans. And so why would I not ask them how they do things And then look with them to see how do we adapt that to the way we as human beings do things. So my work now sort of is is in leadership and in even working design in the built environment. But more than anything, it's about how do we collaborate with plants to bring out the best and of the human being to reawaken all of our true potential and our true nature and allow that to then step in and embody fully whatever it is that we go to do. Because when we do it in this spirit of collaboration, then all of a sudden I don't have to protect the environment because I recognize that I am the environment. So therefore, if I do the right thing for me, I actually will be doing the right thing for everything else. But I have to remember that I am that piece, that I am nature. Look, I'm just going to say right now, I very much doubt this will be the last conversation that we're going to have. I'm going to be presumptuous and say, even on this platform, because as I mentioned to you, we've already had one fabulous natural intelligence dialogue with Lean Goreson, who you know. We have another one coming with Tamsa Wally Barker. Um, and I'm kind of you know conceiving of this little structure in my mind right now where we're going to have a panel of the three of you, <laughs> it's just going to be like the best thing to really challenge a lot of the domains of, of, of prevalent thought right now, right? You know, like why do we have to think about all of these different reductionist domains and you know, how can we conductively move towards a more inclusive sort of almost like an insulating model where everything is We don't even have to keep stating everything's connected. We just know that it is. And we can kind of work off that fundamental presumption and then we can look at objects and other beings and whether it's a plant or it's an animal or it's a human, it's all the same same thing. Having said that, I'm just going to kind of apologise to any member of the audience who wants to find out something else from Tigria, in which case... Scroll down on the show notes now or skip to the end where she's going to tell you where to find all about her because the particular area that, yeah, this is a podcast about how leaders are creating a better world. So let's talk about plant intelligence, plant collaboration, and the the inferences for leaders and what you're doing with those who lead. Let's just say (laughs) that we're going to cover that in the next like half an hour, which is doing a massive disservice to the decade of work <laughs> that you've done in this field. So just Very let's just try it, okay? So first of all, what's plant intelligence all about? 
So plant intelligence is, it's a catch-all phrase, I'm going to be honest, and it's a controversial catch-all phrase. From, from a scientific perspective today, there is a huge debate raging on around whether or not we want to use the term intelligence for plants. Because intelligence really means I am aware of my environment and I modify my behavior accordingly based on that, right? So intelligence is, in its simplest terms, that. The question, though, is that whether or not that is a deterministic, whether that's a, a chosen, right? Whether I consciously choose to do something differently, right? That's kind of where the debate around plant intelligence is. And from the evidence that that certain level of scientific community has found is that plants have memory. So plants can remember things. And then based on that memory, plants choose what to do with that information so that they can modify their behavior. And we we do see modified behavior from plants all over the place, right? You put a plant in a pot in one location and you see how the plant changes the direction that it's, that it's growing so that they go towards the sunlight, right? Now, some would say that's a natural response. Others will say the plant has looked around decided where it is that it's best for them to live, and then they've made the choice to move that way. And that's really what the debate is raging on. So plant intelligence covers that general kind of behavioral intelligence and cognition, right? Whether I'm cognizant of what's happening, and it covers then all the decisions that come based off of that. The kind of sticking point is that there is a whole part of the scientific community that believes you don't have a brain. You don't have a central nervous system. There's no way you can be intelligent, but we're not going to get into that now. But that's really the kind of nexus of what is plant intelligence, plant cognition. Some would say plant consciousness, but most than anything, it's about whether or not plants are able to recognize their environment and make conscious decisions on which direction to take based on the information that they have received. I love all of that. And I'm going to add two things. The first one somewhat controversially, is what I really enjoy watching the myriad of different debates about all of these things that are right there kind of on the leading edge of the, you know, the way that we think about our role and what's ours to do and you know, really what are we in this big experiment called life, is everything you've just said, if you just replace the word plant with people, You'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Why do people do that? And if you extract them out of their familiar context and then you put them over there, why is it that after a period of time they inevitably normalise back to the same habitual patterns? Right? It's like, you know, take an Australian and put them in France and it will only be, you know, a matter of days, if not weeks, before they're seeking out familiar foods and familiar faces and familiar places and familiar sounds and so on and so on and so on. Right? So which is... Like, why are we even having a debate about which is the more intelligent? It's just like, it's all relatable. I'm not saying it's the same, but it's all, it's all relatable. I get the thing about conscious and decision-making, but this is the other thing I'll add, and this, this won't be any you know, kind of news to you, and I'm definitely not trying to claim any kind of expertise or even insight into this. It's just I have a bit of information that when you say what you've just said, I sit there going, yaha, because you know, I point to the empiricism where you can show that plants are sharing resources with their offspring and their mm -hmm. siblings in deference to other plants that are closer to them. And you know, mm -hmm. these, they have these connections in the same way that a parent on the opposite side of the globe will Western Union funds to their child who needs a, a flight home or whatever. 
So like we know this, we can see this, here is the data set, this is irrefutable. But why are we surprised that this is happening? I mean, as you said earlier on, like these are organisms, entities, life forms who have been doing this for a lot longer than we have. Why are we surprised that they're operating in a way that we would see as a family response or a community level sort of social interaction? Why are we surprised when we find groups of plants that sort of operate in mutually conducive compound reciprocal benefit, even if we just look at something as rudimentary as companion planting that exists naturally in nature, right? Like we have signals and we have defenders and we have you know things that shield other species from rain or we have species that create their own rain like mushrooms do as lean shared with us right so it's just like why are we surprised by this and why has it taken us so long to go and learn how to better improve our own ways of being i can give you one word of why i believe that it is so difficult for us to accept this and the word is really simple it's called fear the acceptance of plant intelligence will disrupt the entire way that we operate in this planet. We operate today with an automatic, to a certain extent, assumption that because plants are living beings but and very clever from the perspective of like the things that they do are awe-inspiring and cool, but not necessarily conscious that they're doing it, it gives us, as human beings, domain over what we do with plants, right? We can turn them into pulp for, you know, we can turn the wood into pulp that gets used for things. We can turn them into fibers. We can turn them into food. We can do all of these types of things. To a certain extent, if we want to parallel humans, it was the idea of some humans, it's the caste system, right? We have some humans that are high up and others that it doesn't matter if we, you know, use them as slaves, as labor up until that they die. It's, it's fine because that person is of a lesser value than I am. And from a leadership perspective, this is kind of what we have done when we try to think about like when we use the word intelligence, even in humans, right? He's more intelligent, so he's more important. She's more intelligent in this aspect, so she's more important in all these types of aspects. Rather than if we were to look at plants as separate beings, because they do have their own version of you know, intelligence, they do have their own version of cognition of what it is. And if we start to look at, again, I'm nature, the plant is nature. So that means that we have some things we share, but some things that are different. Now, how do I approach this as two beings that do things very differently and have two different roles in society, but where I don't necessarily use you without taking into consideration who you are and what it is that you need? So yes, can I eat you? course, because plants are nutritious. Plants are good for humans. But should I eat you to the point where I drive you into extinction? No, because now the ecosystem is out of balance and we're out of whack, right? And so if I start to create this relationship with you, just like think about it as two friends, right? You have a person that you don't know. You're very likely to, to a certain extent, take advantage of that person, not on purpose, not because you're going and you're purposely trying to do it. But if I don't know you, then I actually kind of don't know what your motivations or what you think. So it's very easy for me that something I do might either offend you, hurt you, create a disturbance in your life or something like that, because I'm just not aware. The moment I see you as another human being and I take into consideration the fact maybe we become friends, maybe I get to know your situation, all of a sudden our interactions 
change. First of all, I won't take advantage of you. I will get benefit from the things that you do because as a friend, I, you know, get, I feel good and I, and I grow by even just watching you and seeing you and experiencing things that you do. And we have the opportunity to collaborate at times. We might even compete at times, but the overall goal will be for both of us to do well. If I think about that from a perspective of a plant and I'm thinking of even just my lettuce, right? So I'm going with simple from the perspective of like food. If I get to know my lettuce, then I will eat when I'm really hungry. And maybe when I'm just eating out of fear or comfort food, I might discover another, another mechanism. Maybe I'll go exercise because I don't want to waste you. I don't want to, I don't want to hurt. I don't want to take more than you can give in order for, you know, you to be able to produce seed and continue to feed me. I want to see your wellness, but I also want to see my own. So my relationship with you changes. That does not mean I forget that your lettuce and that you have, well, Lettuce doesn't have that much nutritional value, but let's assume you're broccoli and you have a high nutritional value. That does not mean I do not eat you because that is your nature and I want to honor that nature. But I do make sure that you go to seed. I do make sure that there's enough of you that can propagate. I do make sure that you get pollinated the right way. I make sure that there's a reciprocal relationship where I get nourished, but also you get nourished. I continue to grow and thrive. You continue to grow and thrive and your children, because your children is really the propagation of you, where me, it's maybe counted in lives. For you, it's maybe in how many generations of you there are, because I only have this one life in one way, but you live through every generation that you grow. So every time your seed grows, you are living on. And so therefore, we have to start looking at our own team members, as people that we work with, as our own industries and systems, for what they are. And this relationship with plants helps, at least for me and for the people that work with me and my clients, it helps us start to understand the importance of stepping into a logic that's outside of my own and looking for solutions using a new form of logic, which is that natural intelligence. Hell yeah. And we're going to get right into that in just a minute. So the two things that have just been really resonant as sort of energy streams, as I've been what I can say observing, because I'm looking at you through my little digital interface here, is it is very compelling, consistent, I'm going to say evidence in all of your work and all of the inferences and analogies you've just used very eloquently again, is two of the most powerful things to enable people to move through fear and into courage, which seem to be very deeply resonant to me in what I'm observing of your work in this conversation is curiosity and empathy. I mean, to an extent, I think this is part of the reason why I just love spending so much time with my kids and why they're teaching me so much, because you'll see them be so deeply curious and they'll move towards something and then explore something. And then there's a fear response, right? And that fear response for the most part is like this intermittent signal. Right? It's like, oh, hang on a minute, maybe a little bit too curious. But then inevitably, the curiosity takes over again, sometimes without needing any reassuring intervention from a parent or anybody else. Right? It's just the curiosity's back. Uh, now, the fear's gone away because curiosity's back. But then the other thing is, is if an intervention is required, typically the one which is most effective at overcoming fear is empathy. Right? It's not don't feel afraid. Yeah, come on now, be brave, boy. It's actually, yeah, I get it. You know, stuff's real, right? Stuff's scary. Fear's a choice. Danger's real. 
Yeah, sure, but it can be, you know, it can, it can be an unconscious choice, right? Like you, there are pathways that activate that it's extremely difficult, you know, without kind of traumatic surgery, you know, to disrupt, right? So you're going to feel afraid. It is one of the inevitabilities of being alive. But, you know, if somebody is there who can empathize with your fear, yeah, I get it. Yeah, stuff's real, stuff's scary. That's okay. Let's wait, you know, until we can move back to curiosity and then we'll get there. So your analogy, I mean, to me, you're empathizing with your lettuce, right? Um, and and this, is, I mean, this is something that I learn every day in my garden here. Um, you know, I've chosen, we as a, you know, as a couple have made choices, you know, way pre-COVID to move out of the city, move into, you know, a regional rural environment, raise ourselves and our children. You know, we're reparenting, you know, in this very natural environment and we grow stuff. We're not at the point yet of growing all of our food, but, you know, every month, every year we do more. And, yeah, like you have to empathise with the things which are nourishing you in order to make a choice to let them propagate because as a gardener you can have that control. You, know, you can look at that head of broccoli and be like, yeah, you know what? I'm good. I don't need you to nourish me, but I will appreciate and benefit from the nourishment I'll receive from your propagated offspring. And I mean, again, we can go back to reconnecting with and, you know, the reductionist removal from and all of the challenges with eating stuff that comes out of shrink wrap plastic instead of something that you've nurtured uh, yourself. Uh, but that, again, maybe that'll be one of the questions on our panel discussion. Let's explore a little bit plant collaboration, uh, and then we can shift a little bit into the, the specific lessons for, for those that lead. How does one collaborate with a plant? Well, there's, there's lots of different ways, right? We, the first thing is to really move into, move out of plant blindness and into plant awareness. The truth of the matter is that most of us experience at least some, if not a large part of plant blindness. I mean, we walk out of our homes, we walk down the street, and if we see a, a puppy or a kitten, we'll be like, oh, hi, cat or dog or, you know, whatever. But you probably didn't notice the grass on your patio, the dandelion that you just stepped on and the crack growing out of the sidewalk, or the mosses that are growing out of the droplets of water on the wall. And these are all plants that are a part of our lives and that each one of them has a function in our ecosystem, you know, right? Just the same as we have, all of us as humans have our own functions, so, so do the, all these plants. So the first thing is to step into that plant awareness. And once you walk into that plant awareness, once you realize that the world that 80%, 80 to 85% of the biomass of our planet is actually plants, it's vegetal, then all of a sudden things start to change. And that's your first step. So I often recommend to people very simply of starting a new relationship, even with either their house plant or if they have a garden of any sort, whether it's a food garden or a, um, a flower garden, to spend some time, and especially with the smaller plants. Like, yes, it's easy to a certain extent to do it with awe-inspiring trees, and especially when you think about how old they are. But when you think about the ingenuity of grass or of dandelions especially, and you think about the cleverness to to and the resilience and the ability to like crack through concrete and to grow in the most unusual locations, um, then all of a sudden you start to have an appreciation for plants again in their plantness to a certain extent. So even just first seeing, allowing, because the dominant sense for a human being is the sense of sight. 
So once you start even allowing yourself to see these plants in their natural states, in every location, right? The the spider plant, like I said, that's sitting on my uh, on my desk, the right outside my window, the grasses that are breaking through the that this ground that is really hard that we have right here, all of the plants that have been planted and all of them that have spontaneously come, but even just spending time with one of these, you start to then expand out to see the ecosystem in which they are a part of. Because even spider plant lives on this, you know, on my desk, but spider plant is in a pot, inside of the pond is soil. Inside of that soil, there's a whole series of microbes that are growing and you start to expand out to see the uh, ecosystem connections that exist. And when you start to think of that as a microcosm ecosystem of the ecosystem in which I'm living in and start to like experience these things, you recognize and you give yourself that quiet that's necessary to receive messages from the plants. Now, we know from a physiological perspective that spending time in nature is good for our health. It boosts our immune system. It boosts, boosts cognitive functions. Well, how do you think that's happening? That's happening because there are chemical signatures and electrical signatures and all kinds of different volatiles that the plant is putting out in order to help human health, right? Just the same as they nourish us with their bodies when we eat them, they also nourish us in these other ways. Well, who's to say that there are not other kinds of messages there? Some of the chemical signatures that plants put out are specifically to attract pollinators or to ward off pests. They call and uh, repel different types of insects and microbes and mycelial network all through all of these signals. Well, we're just another part of nature too. So if we allow ourselves, if we give ourselves permission to recognize that I am another being of nature and therefore the plant probably has the opportunity to communicate with me and I kind of dispel my disbelief for a second and allow that whatever message comes through whatever of my senses that might arrive is really true. Now I open a channel to communication to a logic that's outside of my own. So I recognize that it might not come in, hey, you know, you should wear a purple shirt today because maybe the plant doesn't really care, but I might get images of my childhood. I might get a, a recognition of a smell that I, that brings me back to a certain situation. And if I think about whatever question I was working on, it's very probable that that smell that brings you to that memory is probably somehow going to give you an answer to what you need. And that's part of how the collaboration starts, really allowing the plant to use their mechanisms for you to be open enough and receptive enough to kind of allow for that bridge, right? To, to be the bridge that starts to put these things together for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I can completely relate to all of that. And I, I think it's interesting, you know, again, as somebody who kind of started off as a historian and then moved into anthropology and then social anthropology and then organizational behavior and blah, 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 blah. And now here I am with leaders. You know, there are so many examples of folk who are considered to be, you know, the great thinkers of whatever, whatever era, domain, whatever, you know, from Darwin to Dickens, who spent an inordinate amount of time outside, often outside walking, often in very minimally disrupted natural environments. And they would say things very similar to what you just described there, like basically Dickens. I go for a long walk and I come back with a novel pre-written and that might be three days later. Is that internal? Is that something that's happening, you know, within the human cortex and it's just stimulated through visual and auditory means? Maybe. 
is it possible that there is some kind of essentially synaptic link that resonates with a lot more of the environment? And again, I would say I would actually say it's more likely that there's more going on because of by evolutionary psychology. Like it's only very, very recently have we kind of done as much as we have to artificially detach ourselves from our environment. So much of what's going on in your brain, if we say it's just based on, you know, a couple of million years of human anthropological evolution, has been developed very much in connection with all of these other organisms and entities around us. But again, it's kind of like, well, why does it seem more obvious to think about it that we are actively exchanging stimuli with all of these other things? Okay, I'm just going to share something. About it. You, you tell me if this is just downright silly, but like I keep thinking of Avatar right? as, you're, as you're talking about. But but then what's also going through my head is like there's so many examples of these really sort of like creative literary works that are actually based on cutting edge science or kind of controversial theories at the time when they were written. And one that I'm thinking of right now is 300 Leagues Under the Sea, right? The Jules Verne novel. Like when it was written, you know, it was like, oh, wow, you know, this amazing work of imagination. But it was written around the time where they were first starting to do like deep dives and they were starting to, you know, sort of really explore the complete unknown, you know, sort of submarine depths. And actually, you know, Jules Verne was, you know, involved with and knew a lot of people in these like really leading edge exploratory fields. So are you quietly, secretly advising James Cameron? Like is, is that an undisclosed uh, you know, sort of client? <laughs> Not Actually, there's two things to say about it that, that kind of make me laugh. One is when I first moved to Dom and Her, there was an entire disc. I didn't know this, but I found out when I got here, because again, I was working on the social media strategy and I discovered this quite quickly. There was an entire discussion about whether or not we were the inspiration of Avatar, we as Dom and Hurry. Yeah, right. Because we do have like a main tree that that's called Diamantel, who's very important to us. And there was all these things. And apparently kind of the original storyline is connected to an Italian of some sort. I don't actually know the whole story. So there was an entire discussion as to whether or not we were that. None of the other part is that, that James Cameron has gone on to really explore, for example, Atlantis, which Dom and Hur is very connected to Atlantis and Atlantean culture. And so there's an entire Entire connection there that I won't go into in this one. But what you said reminds me, from a Dom and Hurian perspective, we believe that really everything, and there's a lot of cultures that are similar to this, that believe that everything that there is, because we are in the world of form, right, everything is finite. Everything has already been created, you know, all the, all the base materials are there. And so it is, of course, completely possible that, you know, these great works that, of course, when you allow yourself to quiet the mind, you open your senses and you allow this collaboration to happen, that you are able to see what most people are not able to see because of the filters of fear that we have. And that is exactly what we were talking about, you know, right? When I open myself to spider plan and have a conversation, some might think I'm seeing into the future, but I'm not. It's just that the plant has 15 more senses than I do. And so spider plant is able to see a whole series of things and know, like recognize and deal with and, and information in ways that I am not able to. So when I open myself to those senses and I start to expand my own senses, then I'm able to receive information that allows me to put it together using my human 
possibilities and using my human experiences in a different way. And therefore, it looks like I'm reading the future, but I'm really not. I'm just reading the present in a much more refined way. And I think this is another one of going back to the leadership question, right? Why collaborate with plants? Because that expansion of my senses allows me to be a better leader because I'm able to work with people in new ways. One of the things that I did discover, we, you talked at the very beginning about, you know, collaboration and mutualisms, right? Mutually beneficial relationships, which we see in nature all over the place. And this is really the focus of a lot of people. But I'm going to take you one step further, because one of the things that I have learned from working with plants that I absolutely love and working with nature in general is the fact that nature creates lots of different kinds of relationships. Mutualisms is one of them, but there's commensalisms, there's immensalisms, there's um, parasitism, there's predation, right? These are all relationships in which at different parts you're benefiting or not benefiting. But the difference is all of them in their complexity are useful to the entire ecosystem. What's most important is that plants, unlike what we think about humans, is don't use these to hurt the other. They use them to create an overall benefit to the ecosystem. So maybe I will be a parasite on some other plant for a while, or maybe that parasitism, or maybe it's commensalism. It doesn't really hurt the other plant, even though I'm getting a, a benefit from it, right? It's, there's neutral, but all of these relationships have their place. The difference is, are we as humans able to recognize their place? When I worked at Microsoft, there was periods where Bill Gates would give two teams the exact same mission without telling them. And then he would tell them at some point and reveal it when they had gotten farther along. So there would be competition. But then at some point, he integrated those teams. He didn't allow the competition to become, you suck, I'm going to destroy you. It wasn't that. It was, ooh, ooh, so-and-so is doing this. Can we do it better? And then let's integrate it back. Let's, let's start working together as a team. So when we recognize that nature uses all these types of relationships selectively, but the only way to know how to do that is to look at the overall ecosystem. So I have to look at a systems view. I have to understand the connections, the implications, the, the who's going to get hurt, who's instead going to benefit. Am I able to then use that later so that I don't create a, a, a damage that lasts over time? Like, how do I look at the overall system? And then as a leader, by connecting in these transdisciplinary relationships, then say, okay, let's work towards creating over here this type of relationship and this over here. And then, okay, now it's finished, it's done. Let's change that up. But without a systems view or an ecosystems view, as I, as I think of it, we can't make those choices in a way that makes sense. And more than anything, we won't create the feedback loops, which all of nature uses, to understand when it's time to change. And so these are all those types of things that that natural intelligence helps us to first be comfortable with because we've been taught competition is bad, mutualism is good, immensalism stinks, parasitism, oh my God, predation, terrible. Like we've been taught all these like hard lines as humans, but nature doesn't think of it that way. Nature uses them as it's necessary. And so when we step back into that role and we say, okay, what's the overall ecosystem win? What do we need to make sure that the ecosystem continues to thrive? Going back to that positive mental health, right? How does it flourish? And then I'm able to better use all of these. And that's good leadership. Good leadership is seeing all of that around and being able to work within all these parameters. Nothing is inherently bad. It's all about when 
how much and for how long. Okay, so I'm going to dial right in and and let's sort of double click now on the leadership piece. If you're engaged to work in a specific organizational context, you know, with with a particular group of leaders, like how do you start to, I'm going to use a, um, you know, sort of somewhat, um, you know, sort of natural term, how do you transplant, you know, the specific focus that you have on the vegetative world and how do you create pathways whereby somebody who might be working in tech or you know working in a hospital or you know working running a, a retail business or whatever it's going to be like how can they start to grapple with what you're sharing with them and then apply it to their own leadership behaviors so for me personally when i'm when i'm working with um even when i'm working with groups i tend to focus a lot on the individual from the perspective of again going back to that that reawakening right that reconnection so that you can start to look at what are your inherent biases and your inherent fears that are blocking your ability to open these senses right just the same as i was talking about opening your senses with a plant to receive that communication how do i open my senses and open my ability to receive communication even from other team members that might not arrive in a mechanism I understand, right? If if I'm a, I don't know, a marketing person and I don't understand tech, then I won't, just because somebody explains something to me in a technical term, I won't understand it necessarily. So I have to build on other forms of communication to build a bridge between us. So I will usually start there. Like, what are my inherent biases that always come from a deep-seated fear, that I can work with the natural world to recognize and understand how these biases really are more denying my true nature, right? They're denying the natural intelligence and natural connection that can flow between myself and this other person or this other team or what. So if our team has created a series of biases or of, you know, thinking that we can do it alone, then looking at it from stepping away and looking at that, that ecosystem, right? What is the membrane as, as Fritov Kapper would say, that's been created? And is that membrane rigid? Because from the perspective of Capra talking about systems view of life, he says that the, you know, the cause of illness, whatever level, whether we're talking about institutional illness or uh, cognitive illness or physical illness or environmental is always a membrane that is too rigid, right? Whenever you have a cell that is not allowing things to flow in and flow out, toxins to go out and good things to come in, then disease takes hold. When I have a belief system that is rigid, I am no longer able to let things flow. And so therefore, when I look what kind of models can nature, either by direct contact or again, as a mentor or as a model, can nature help us see that rigidity and allow us to then create the safety mechanisms necessary for me to dissolve that rigidity and allow that exchange to happen. So I usually will start there. What are the inherent biases? Where are they coming from? Are they stemming from my misunderstanding of the nature of the team or the nature of the organization? Are they a mismatch between values, which often happens, going back to meaning and and that? Where are those biases coming from? And how many of them are coming from within me, right? I believe that this thing is irrelevant but in reality, it's because I'm afraid of it because I don't understand it. And so what are those low level fears that are helping also to create that? Because when we spend time in nature, whether it's 
I go off and I do a survivalist training so that I learn how to find food so that I don't have to worry about making money because I'm not going to be able to eat or whether or not it is looking at nature and seeing, oh my God, if I go and I look at grass, there's always like three or four. So it's always a system like, oh wait, maybe I should look at systems approaches. Like we can look at what the models are, but only when we first understand values and biases that are inherent into the system and that are causing that rigidity. What would you say or what would you anticipate or what you would you have experienced are the typical, that all sounds great, but type responses? Like what are the obstacles or what are some of the more prevalent biases that people really struggle to kind of move beyond? Well, a few of them come from the fact that I think that the most common ones I hear are, again, going back to those low-level fears, right? We have a misunderstanding sometimes of what we really want to accomplish. And that's in part because we have let our values go out of sync with our actions, right? So common ones that we hear is, right, the need to make money above all else because that's, you know, survival. Okay, let's go back and see what happens when maybe you don't make money in that same way. What what it, what are when you start to break down the fears below that? And sometimes I go personally, I go way deep because again, I have sent people to survival classes because oftentimes it comes back to the whole if I don't make money, I can't keep the ship afloat and I can't keep the ship afloat. How do I go to the supermarket and buy my own food? Well, there's chickweed and dandelion right outside your door. Go out and eat some of it. And not that I want you to go out and just eat that as your diet. But once you have that relationship, that recognition that you could survive, now all of a sudden my values shift from, wait a minute, I don't need the mega this. Instead, I actually really just need enough to keep this thing afloat. And therefore, let me look at other values that come into place. So we sometimes discount that low-level fear, but that low-level fear is super important to look at. That's the first one. The second one is also just, again, not ever knowing what the system looks like. How do the pieces interrelate? And that's another bias. Like, oh, this guy over here doesn't understand my value because they don't know what I'm doing. But that often represents itself as he doesn't care about me. They don't care about what I'm doing. When the other guy might not just understand or the other the other team might not understand the, the way that that pumps back into the system. So sometimes even just a rudimentary way of seeing how all the different parts that have been created feed into one another so that you create that sort of mind map out there that of what the flow is of allows you to start to see that nobody is more important than the other. The overall system works because all of us are there. Sometimes it also helps us see some of the things we should cut out that don't make sense. So really understanding, so biases around I don't feel understood, right? I don't feel like anybody recognizes what, not just as myself, but also as my team. So both of those. And that low-level fear that causes things like, I need to make money. Well, do you really need to make money? Or what is it that you want? Oh, well, I need to have shelter and I need to have food and I need to have this and I need to have that. I'm like, okay, that's different than I need to make money. Because that doesn't mean we shouldn't make money, but the, the money needs to be, again, another piece of this overall puzzle. So we step into a lot of these values. And so I think most of the time what ends up happening with the people that I work with is we sort of step back to the values and we do it in two levels. One is first, what are the goals that you want to achieve? Then second, what are your values? Then third, let's connect to the wider system. And then let's go back and relook at your values. Are they the same? 
because it's very likely that once you start to recognize your true nature and you start to recognize yourself as part of nature, whether it's the nature of the organization, the nature of, you know, outside of ourselves, nature in general as a very kind of like kind of uh, inner workings sort of word, your values will now change. And therefore, then going back to look at your goals and it's like, do your goals really match your new values? Yeah, I love that. I mean, we, I do a heck of a lot of work with people with values, people, teams, organizations, and the inherent conflict is always this conflict. I could be gentle and say conflict, or I could be a little bit more provocative and say hypocrisy that is seemingly inherent in so many of the choices that people make. I mean, I have had really raw coaching dialogues with people who you know, are earning in excess of half a million dollars a year, yet are at the point of like complete internal collapse bordering on despair because they feel essentially completely dislocated from their own intrinsic values. And when you take them through these journeys, yeah, the awakening can be really powerful. You don't have to abandon that ship entirely and, you know, swim to shore and then, you know, shoot flaming arrows at it and, you know, take all that. I mean, this is the, the other sort of the design approach that I take is it's, you know, let, let's use a circular experience model here. Let's use everything that we've got, right? Take everything that you are, everything that you're doing and just build it back in, right? Like remember, right? Put the you know, separate parts of yourself back together, remember your entity and yourself, um, you know, and find the beauty there. You know, don't, don't sort of get into this constant, you know, sort of like awful internal combat almost of, I have to have that and I have to have this and the two are, you know, infinitely moving in opposite direction. Part of what this work does when, when, and again, I, I keep going back to the idea of like, again, we, we are able to see pretty, not pretty easily, but easier, you know, plants as models and maybe plants as mentors or nature as models, nature as mentors, going back to even lean, like all of the part of natural intelligence. When you recognize that last part, like I am nature. So I am simultaneously looking at nature. I am participating in nature, but I also am nature. Like all three of these are happening at the same time. When I recognize that I am, what also going back to your example right now about people who are making like half a million and yet are, are struggling internally and all these things is that you naturally, your wants change. Your wants just naturally change because when I am nature, the level of satisfaction, again, that, that low level fear gets squashed and that level of satisfaction between me, like of who I am in my life, that meaning and those accomplishments change. And I naturally, without anybody having to tell me consume less, you know, go out and, and, you know, from an environmental perspective, you shouldn't buy this and you shouldn't buy that. And you should control yourself this way. And you should do that, which are all sort of based on these negative reinforcements. When I recognize that I am nature, all of a sudden, I just don't buy that. I, I don't buy things made out of plastic that I don't really need. Nobody has to tell you what to do. You just naturally do it. Yeah, I mean, what I receive out of that, and I'm reflecting on another conversation I had recently, is there's this whole thou shalt not that's come out of the conservation movement and it's come out of the you know, original global warming and, you know, we won't pump CFCs into the atmosphere, sure. Um, you know, we won't 
buy more cars that create more carbon. In really none of that has been an emphasis on, but here's a better way, right? And here, here is a job that you're going to love doing that just so happens to have a infinitely more positive impact on everything, right? And I think that that, that is kind of the secret source to, to what I'm receiving from you. It's just like there is this shift that can be made. There is this choice that lies at your feet. You know, the pathway is already there in the ground that you're standing on. And if you choose to take just one small initial step down that pathway and then another, what you will find is that the choices that you naturally make will be choices that make things better and are better for you. And it becomes this beautiful perpetual cycle. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder where, where essentially like where there are a lot of the trauma that we're inflect, inflicting on each other and on ourselves and on the planet, because it's all one system. Um, yeah, it is this really, this it's this internal grappling and really no one just sort of stopping and saying, well, hang on, there's a better way here. And, and that is better in the completely universal sense. But I am now unfortunately going to have to swing the pendulum and say, you know, time's up or time, time is nearly up. This has been exactly the conversation I anticipated, free-flowing, you know, wild and um, thoroughly unregulated. But no, I'm conscious of, uh, of everybody's time and attention. And I hope there will be many. Uh, anyone that's listening to this is, is intensely curious and really desperate now to find out more about you. Where's the best way for them to do that? So the best way is um, my website, of course, which is just my full name, tigrilagardenia.com. And then I also have a community it's called the Naturally Conscious Community. It is a standalone, so getting off of Facebook and LinkedIn, a standalone community where we talk about all these subjects. This is exactly the conversations we have. And to reach that, you just go to community.tigrilagardenia.com. Perfect. Perfect. And as of right now, scroll down and those are hyperlinked there. So you don't have to do anything other than click on those wherever you're listening to this and or watching it. Tria, is there anything in particular that you're excited about that you would like to steer people towards in terms of the something that you're doing right now that, that you think might be of interest to people that have enjoyed this conversation? Yeah, you've enjoyed this conversation. Well, there's two things. One is, of course, I'm always available for anybody who is looking to work specifically on these topics, right? As a mentor and as a leadership coach, that's always one avenue. The other thing is I have a, a course called Reconnect with the Plant Kingdom pretty, you know, simple and obvious, which takes you through you know, through seven modules of exactly these topics, life and death. What is an ecosystem? What does it mean to be an individual in an ecosystem? What is food? And really um, is a deep dive. It's self-paced. Um, it's, as you can tell from the way I speak, it's chocked filled with information from a scientific perspective, with creative activities, with all kinds of different things. And I, I created this course in order to give people the time to deep dive one by one into these topics because they are life-changing. They are transformational. They completely change and turn around the way that you think about the world and your interactions with the world. So Reconnect with the Plant Kingdom is a great place for people. And you can reach that in my community. If you just go again to community.tigrilagardenia.com, you will see there where the course is located. And there's also, and the final little prompt, a uh, 
spirit wild plant quiz if people are yeah. curious about their plant association <laughs> yeah and this is because I mean, you know there was so many people out there who have these like totem animals and everybody talks about what's your totem animal and but what about your plants like and especially wild plants which many will call weeds these are the most resilient plants they're they're located everywhere they have learned how to be, be with humanity yet not be domesticated by humanity necessarily i found a variation of chickweed the other day i went i went rock climbing and the last bit i was trying to figure out how to get there. I'm not an expert in any which way, shape or form. And there was this mouse ear chickweed growing from a crack in this like wall. And I kept staring at this tiny little plant and I could feel like, Hey man, if I could live here and if I can figure out how to work in this crack, I think you can get to that marker. Like, come on, put your hand over here. And I can just feel it because these plants have grown in the most incredible of locations. So when you connect into one of these wild, you know, these wild plants as a spirit plant, then all of a sudden you have the opportunity to really open up to a new level of communication of connection. Right. You've got me. So I'm hooked. I'm going to be going to do this quiz. So <laughs> if anyone is curious as to what my wild <laughs> plant uh, spirit is, I will include that right at the very bottom of the show notes. So if you want to know what my plant is, just scroll down. I'm super curious myself. This has been fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm already struggling to resist the, the temptation to you know reach out to to Tamsin and Lean right now and say, hey, I think we I think there's a panel conversation brewing here. But let's see, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I really hope we'll have an opportunity to to, to talk again. Uh, but thank you for everything that you've been so generous in sharing here today. Uh, and yeah, let's talk again at some point soon. Thank you. Thank you for creating the space. Wow, wow, and wow. That at least is pretty much all I've got when it comes to summarising that conversation. Uh, I mean, just, just incredible, you know, how divergent and how diverse, you know, the topics are that all come back to resonating in the same zone. How can we make the world better? And, yeah, if you haven't already, um, you know, sort of paused that recording and gone and looked for the conversation with Lean Gorenson, just scroll down. I've tagged it um, in the show notes. Um, and also essentially look out for um, the conversation that is coming uh, in the second half of this season with Tams and Wally Barker. Uh, so those two definitely have very strong congruence with what we've covered with Tigria here today. Um, so if this conversation has really landed with you, definitely go and check out the conversation with Lean, which is available, um, well, podcast-wise, audibly pretty much everywhere you get podcasts these days uh, and it's visually uh, in the 4i leadership youtube channel as well uh, and you can check out lean's center ni um and then the, the conversation with tamsin coming ahead and I, I think in all seriousness i'm certainly going to put forward this idea about having a panel with these three incredible women uh to, to really sort of deepen this dialogue around how each of their focuses and, 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 and workflows can can come together but just in terms of a brief reflection on, on the conversation we've just had, I think it really fundamentally all comes down to slowing down, listening, reconnecting, and appreciating and almost expecting that everything is connected, that there is a shared flow of whatever you want to describe it as. 
energy intention magnetism cosmicness um that, that connects all things and i think it's coming in and moving back you know sort of into that point of reflection that's really where we find the great leadership today and that's where we find the greatest impact coming from the further away the further up the further out leaders go and then look back or look down yeah i think that, that that's where there's a there's a lot that, that's missing um so i think as potentially abstract as the work that degree is doing uh i think there's a lot of consequence that can come by reconnecting and moving with the congruence that she's demonstrating in that conversation that's enough for now other than just to say very very quickly uh there's a few new things uh that we've been doing if you don't follow it on any of the four eye leadership channels um then of course please do um but i would encourage you to do so more than anything else because i fear that you might be missing out on something that might help help you to lead in a way that lifts the capability of those around you deepens the connections that you have with them um and essentially helps you lead to make the world better uh we are doing some novel things uh, we are doing some things differently and divergently ourselves um so without going on and uh you know turning this into an advertising platform which it absolutely is not um yeah i would just implore you to go and check out some of the things that we're doing and if there's anything there that is of interest to you there's all kinds of different ways and different services that you can get involved with uh, and there is something we would say special coming quite soon uh, so look out for that um as always you know please do feel to get in feel free to get in touch uh, through the socials um through our emails uh, and and with the guests of course as well as with us uh but i will leave it there with the i say at this point traditional be well lead well and keep on creating our better world and we'll be back again with you very very soon as always great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you to brendan ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode to Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face to face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice. And to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4ileadership.com/insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast brought to you by 4i Leadership. world.